Let's imagine for a moment that New City Baptist Church is a church that's wracked by division. So there is division in the church of God. And our membership has split into two camps. There's the Pastor Alex Bloomfield camp, and there's the Pastor John Bell camp. And Alex and I have set ourselves against each other, and each man has his own loyal followers. I'm for Alex. I'm for John. And members are boasting in their superior wisdom of their self-identification in each case. Imagine, too, that New City, there's a member at New City who's in a sexual relationship with his stepmother, with his father's wife. But instead of disciplining the man, many of us are boasting in his freedom in Christ to behave in such a wicked way. Can you imagine? Imagine Nick Reyna was suing Kishan Lochan in open civil court. Imagine church members were hiring prostitutes, not in secret, openly. It's no big deal. Meanwhile, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers. That's the biblical ideal, even for married couples. Celibacy. Still, other debates rage in the church about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past and the role of conscience. There's bitter disagreement about men's and women's roles in the church. The Lord's Supper is being abused. People are getting sick. People are dying. It's divine judgment because that ordinance is being conducted in a sinful fashion. People are overvaluing certain grace gifts. In particular, people are placing a premium on the gift of tongues. And any new city member, not so blessed, is deemed less important. This is you, but this is me up here because I speak in tongues. Moreover, the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to some in the church, gifts to facilitate public worship, gifts to edify the assembly, they're being used in a disorderly and chaotic manner. Finally, a significant number of immature Christians in the congregation here at New City don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Of course, this description isn't of any contemporary church. It's not New City Baptist Church, thank God. Uh, It's a description of the local church in first century Corinth. Or as Paul describes them in verse 2 of our text today, chapter 1, the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. I want that to cause some some dissonance in your thinking. Uh, That that may not be the description that we're, we're kind of quite expecting of this group of people, given the laundry list of sin that's occurring in this congregation. And and that apparent inconsistency, that's the very thing God wants us to understand from this portion of his word today. Uh, Loved ones, what does it mean to be sanctified? In Christ Jesus. And called to be his holy people. Because that's not describing the Corinthian church only. It's every Bible-believing church. It's us. It's all believers. The church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. And these are the main points of our sermon today. Christians are holy Christians are responsible to be holy. Hence our sermon title, Christian, Become What You Are. And and I think that's a sermon title that's simultaneously convicting and encouraging. Christian, become what you are. God has called us to be 
what he has made us to be. Holy. We're a holy people. Okay? How do we do that? What's God's part? What's our part? And how is all of this related to the gospel? What God's accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection uh, for sin? Today, we're looking at the nine-verse introduction to Paul's first letter to the church, the church in Corinth. And, and these are not nine verses that we can just easily skim over. They, they teach us so, so much. Not only do these opening words anticipate the, the letter itself, they disclose a great, great deal of Paul's theology and his own pastoral care. As the letter will reveal... There are strained relationships in the church, both between the church and Paul and internally within the membership itself. Moreover, the cause of many of these tensions is that some gifts of God are being badly abused. Nonetheless, Paul can still open his letter. Now hear this. He opens his letter with honest thanksgiving, both for the Corinthians themselves and for their spiritual gifts that God has given them. Because these gifts serve as evidence of God's confirming his preaching among them. Paul will, in good time, he'll speak to all of these things that are occurring in the church, um, all these abuses, and, and he does so, we'll see, with full apostolic authority. He doesn't pull any punches. But for now, in these opening nine verses... Paul is grateful. He's grateful to God for the Corinthian church. Look at verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. It's that outlook in verse 4 that controls the heart of the opening nine verses. Paul's concern today is to redirect the Corinthians focus away from themselves to God and to Christ Jesus away from uh, an over-realized eschatology with all the triumphalistic blessings they enjoy now, now, now to a healthy awareness of the glory that's still future, that's still coming of what God will accomplish in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection in the new heavens and new earth. So, I'm excited, brothers and sisters, to preach this text. This, this is a good book. I was telling Andrew this this morning. This is a good book, 1 Corinthians, for a 13-year-old church, which is what we are, to work through. It's good for us. So let's get down to it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And at I think at the outset, it might be wise to place Paul in his salvation historical context because he lives at a crossroads in God's history of redemption. Paul's part of that unique Jewish generation who at one time served and worshipped God under the stipulations of the Old Covenant, but who later worshipped and served God in the power of the Spirit under the stipulations of the New Covenant— after the old covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that situation, that sort of straddling of two covenants, that's unique to just one generation of Jews. And Paul was part of that unique generation. I want us all to have that in our back pocket for the coming weeks. It's going to help us understand Paul and then interpret his words more accurately. Now, of course, famously, the risen Jesus gloriously revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. And the effect that that resurrection appearance had on Paul, on Saul, was turning him from a zealous persecutor of the church to a follower of Jesus. And not just any follower of Jesus, but an apostle. Look at verse 1 again. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that's a term, apostle, that we need to understand at the outset. As you can see in your handout, along with everything else in our passage today, I want to ask and then answer three questions. What's an apostle? What's a church? 
what are the tenses of sanctification? We're going to kind of work this through at the beginning of this sermon. So first, what is an apostle? And you'll notice that uh, on your bulletin, it says under the title that Pastor John Bell is preaching this sermon. It doesn't say Apostle John Bell. Why is that? What is an apostle? Well, as that term is used in the New Testament, an apostle is a messenger, but a special messenger. They've seen the risen Lord. And they've been personally appointed by the resurrected Jesus to preach the gospel. A person can't be an apostle unless those two conditions are met. Now, you'll meet all sorts of people coming from various offshoots of the charismatic and holiness movement uh, who are self-designated apostles. I lived in Rexdale once upon a time, and pretty much every single lamppost in that neighborhood has an advertisement for an upcoming religious conference with, lo and behold, an apostle leading up the whole shebang. Don't believe it for a second. All right? Those so-called apostles are investing themselves with an authority to which they have no biblical right. And I'll be arguing later in this sermon series, and I'll just sort of throw this theological raw meat out right now to the wolves. Uh, I'm going to be arguing later that apostleship is the one gift that has ceased. Tongues, prophecy, wisdom, they don't cease until Jesus Christ returns. Uh, but apostleship has ceased. And notice Paul writes in verse 1, that his apostleship is an office he holds because he was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that's not just some biographical data that might be of interest to us. Uh, Paul has the God-given status of an authoritative leader in all the churches of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul has been given authority by God in what he preaches and teaches and writes. He's Jesus' spokesman. Which means even 2,000 years later, uh, it's, it's either Paul's way or it's the highway in all matters of church life. So let me ask, how does that fact sit with you, Christian? It's either Paul's way or the highway in all matters of church life. Many Christians don't care for that at all. They don't care for Paul's teaching. Uh, they're nicknamed red-letter Christians. Have you heard of this group of Christians? Red-letter Christians, so-called because the words of Jesus in certain unfortunately printed Bibles are in red ink. I'm not a big fan of that at all. Uh, friend, if you believe that the teachings of Jesus are to be admired and obeyed, but, but not so much the words of his apostles... Uh, if you believe, say, that the teachings of Jesus have priority over the writings of the Apostle John, you're dead wrong, and you're in real spiritual danger. Paul's epistle to the Galatian church, Peter's epistles to the churches in Cilicia, or John's revelation, they all have just as much divine authority as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Those men were all carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Holy Scripture. God himself could have written the epistle to the Corinthians, one and two, uh, on the side of a mountain with his finger. What I'm saying is there is no getting around Paul and there is no getting around his apostolic authority or any apostle or writer of Holy Scripture, which is why... Paul places this designation of himself as an apostle at the beginning of this letter. So, guys, heads up. In the coming weeks, as we work our way through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Paul will be commanding certain things of us. As individuals and as a whole church. Uh, people he's never met. People who live 2,000 years after he's died. People who live on another continent and another culture entirely. 
Even so, he's commanding things of us. No person has the right to command of another human being. Unless he speaks for God. Unless he's Jesus' spokesman. And certainly, according to our 21st century Canadian ethic, many of the Apostle Paul's teachings are deeply offensive. They're intolerant, misogynistic, homophobic, narrow-minded, antiquated. But if Paul speaks for God, then that says something about our 21st century Canadian ethic, doesn't it? It condemns it. It means my natural inclinations about what's good and bad, right and wrong, as it's filtered through my enlightened worldview, is sinful. It's wrong. It's at variance with God's self-disclosure. It, it means it's I who must change. Because if Paul speaks for the resurrected Christ, then his writings have absolute authority over my life as well as the teachings and practices of this local assembly. Every church, for all time. Let's just put that front and center now, at the beginning of this sermon series, all right? Look at verse 1 again. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. And Sosthenes is Paul's co-worker. He's not uh, his co-author. He's present with Paul as he writes this letter. But the rest of the epistle doesn't mention Sosthenes again. And, and Paul uses the first person throughout. Okay, that's verse 1 in the bag. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. And as we move now into verse 2, we come across a couple more words, I think, that need defining. Church and sanctification. So let's just get these definitions under our belt now, and then we're in good shape for the rest of the sermon, the rest of the sermon series, and then actually the rest of our lives. To the church of God in Corinth. Look at your handout again. What is a church? A group of Christians who together identify themselves and each other as followers of Jesus and as the church through regularly gathering in one place at one time in his name, preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinances. And the term church always refers to people who gather together. Never, ever a church building. Uh, ecclesia is the word behind this. It, just, it means assembly. In the Bible... Believers never go to church. I challenge you, I defy you, <laughs> to find one example of that usage in the New Testament. Instead, believers meet with the church. Isn't that beautiful? So that might be a little correction for all of us. I'm including myself in this. Parents, as you're wrangling your kids together, you know, let's go to church. We've got go to go get, get to church. No, no, say, let's, as you're wrangling together, let's go meet with the church. Right? So, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification. This is our last definition of the day. I, I know three definitions in, in two verses is a lot, but definitions, brothers and sisters, they're essential if we want to understand what God is teaching us in his word. If the, if the definition is off by even a few degrees, then we can, just, we can end up missing the whole thing, like a rocket missing the moon, because the math is just a little bit off. Evangelicals regularly draw a line between justification and sanctification. Christian, can you do that in your mind right now? Can you, can you draw that line? Can you make the distinctions between those two things, justification and sanctification? I go at it hammer and tongs. I, I'm hoping, by God's grace, it, it's starting to take root. It's a very, very important distinction. Justification is God's declaration that an individual sinner is just, that they have right legal standing before him in his courtroom of judgment, right legal standing. And this divine declaration isn't grounded in the fact that that person actually is inherently just. Uh, no such person exists. There is no one righteous, not even one person. 
No, this divine declaration is grounded in God's accepting Jesus' death instead of the sinner's. It's God's reckoning Jesus' righteousness to the sinner and forgiving their sin. So think of it this way. Justification marks the beginning of the believer's pilgrimage. It's it's the first thing. From the believer's vantage point, to be justified is a once-for-all experience bound up with God's good purposes in Jesus' once-for-all death. By contrast, sanctification in the Protestant tradition has normally been understood to be to refer to the process by which believers progressively become more and more holy. Uh, and that's because the words holy and sanctified and sanctification, they all have the same root in Greek. And sanctification, when it's being contrasted with justification, is not a once-for-all experience. Right? It reflects a lifelong pilgrimage. And it's a process that won't finally be complete until the onset of the new heavens and new earth. The thing is, what makes this tricky, what makes it difficult, is that the the sanctification word group, all those words as they occur in the Bible, actually it hasn't been well served by this analysis that I just gave you. Uh, As Don Carson reminds us, those who study Paul have long noted that sometimes people are said to be sanctified in a positional or definitional sense. I know this is getting complex, but guys, this is super important in a positional or definitional sense. So that is, they are set apart for God positionally. And they are therefore already are sanctified definitionally. Uh, The process of progressively becoming more and more holy, it's nowhere in view. In fact, most of the places where Paul talks about being holy or sanctified falls into this positional or definitional camp. It's certainly uh, what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. The Corinthians already are sanctified. They've already been set apart for God. Therefore, they've been called to be holy, to live in line with their calling. Which, by and large, now hear this, by and large, they're failing to do that. Right? Spectacularly so, judging by the rest of this epistle. Nevertheless, Paul says they're already holy. And God calls them to be holy. What that means is, saints must live like saints. It means all Christians must become practically what we already are positionally. Christian, become what you are, right? Uh, But Christians can't be holy without the one person who embodied and accomplished holiness. Jesus is holy, and Jesus makes his people holy. Holy is what God's people must strive to be now, however imperfectly, until God consummates his plan to make his people holy in the new heavens and new earth. Look at your handout again. What are the tenses of sanctification? We can speak of it as being in the past. This is definitional, positional. I was sanctified. By far, the majority of usages in the New Testament is this kind right here. I was sanctified in Christ Jesus. Then there's present, progressive holiness. I am being sanctified. And then future. That's glorification. I will be sanctified. You can use, you can say all three of those things. I was sanctified. I am being sanctified. One day I will be sanctified. Okay, that's all the technical stuff behind this. It's smooth sailing from now on, I promise. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. God has called the Corinthian church to be his holy people together with all other believers. That's important. That means Paul's not requiring more from the church in Corinth than he requires from any of his people in any other place or in any other time, including us. God's people follow the same master. The rules for how Christians are to live, they're all the same for all periods of time. 
Uh, God's people follow the same master. But the thing I find really striking about verse 2, and really, guys, this is the theme of the whole sermon. You're going to hear this over and over again. It's Paul's theological description of the Corinthian church in light of their laundry list of sin. Right? To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Man, I wish that New City Baptist Church could get a letter from a real apostle with, with that, kind of, that kind of greeting there to the, to the people at New City. What, a, what an honor that would be if he were to be described in this fashion. You, you'd think that Paul would reserve greetings like that for the really good, holy churches of the world, right? Uh, not an assembly that's just on the verge of falling off a moral cliff. So what's going on here? Why is Paul saying these things, right? Like, is, he, is he just buttering them up? Is he being sincere, insincere? Uh, no, he's not being insincere, not at all. And, and this gets to the heart of our message today. Pay close attention. For Paul, these attributes aren't qualities that result from the transformed behavior of these believers. They're theological assertions. This is what God has done on their behalf in Christ. The congregation is the church of God. They're an assembly that God himself has brought into existence. And their status of sanctified, made holy, that's due to God's purifying action in Jesus Christ. And as a result, their sins have been forgiven, enabling them to serve God. They're holy because of the initiative of God who called them. And so they're people who trust Jesus as the Messiah and as their Lord. When, when I bought Jill's engagement ring 10 years ago, the various rings that I was comparing were, were brought out of a locked glass display case, and they were then placed before me on this really kind of ratty piece of brown felt. And uh, that, that unflattering color and material, I think, was well chosen because it caused the, the shininess of the gold and, and the luster of the diamond really to stand out in sharp, sharp contrast with all kinds of overhead lights, just the diamonds sprinkling, glittering and stuff. I think that's a good way to think of the church in Corinth and why Paul deliberately begins his letter to them by making these theological assertions. Here we have the diamond ring of all the gospel blessings found in their union with Jesus Christ, sanctified, got called to be God's holy people set out in glorious contrast to the brown, ratty felt of their sin and their division, their heresy. Which isn't to say, now hear this, which isn't to say if a person makes a profession of faith at some point in the distant past, they say the sinner's prayer, they go forward at a Billy Graham crusade or whatever it might be, or even if their local church has a great statement of faith to which all the members must subscribe to without reservation, then that means that any unrepentant sin that takes place in the church or in one's personal life gets swept under the carpet. Once saved, always saved. You often hear that slogan. That's, that's not it at all. No, no, no. Christians are holy. We've been sanctified. But we're responsible to be holy. We're being sanctified, every Christian, without exception. Which is linked, obviously, with persevering obedience and even things like church discipline. And Paul goes there. You know, he has the whole rest of the epistle to unpack all these things. We're going to come to that later in our series. But for now, it's very important we understand what Paul writes in verse 2. He writes knowing that this church, he knows it full well, this church is a mess. And still he says this. They're deeply troubled. And still he writes this. Which is why, I mean, later on, with all the authority of his apostolic office, he admonishes them, he commands them, he even threatens them. But before he does any of that, New City, he prays for them. In verse 3, 
And then he gives thanks for the grace that they've already received in Christ and for the grace that will sustain them to the end. That's his approach. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this, I think, in previous sermons, but it's so easy for us to think of Paul's opening salutation like in this letter and all of his all of his epistles uh but to look at the, these opening three verses as being kind of like the opening credits to a movie uh most of us i think probably have a pretty ambivalent relationship with film credits and with good reason they aren't they usually aren't very imaginative uh they're just a mere formality right i mean unless you're the the cinematographer's mother you, you don't care about any of this stuff you just have to get it on the screen let it fly, fly by we fast forward through them all the time you know, we tune out or we just make a quick trip, last trip to the washroom. We heat up the popcorn again. Um, and there's a temptation. And I saw this this week as I was preparing this sermon. There's a temptation to think that God doesn't really, really begin to exhale his divine authoritative word until after the formal salutation. Right? Verse 4. That's when this letter becomes useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. The first three verses, that's just formality, yada, 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 get on to the good stuff. God forbid, right? We deliberately, we need to slow down and prayerfully, I think, resist this tendency to skim, to fast forward, to tune out, and meditate on what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here. Because this opening salutation is no by-rote formula. It tells us that the Apostle Paul is defined by the gospel of Christ Jesus, and that the church he's writing to is to be centered on the gospel, these opening verses, as short as they are, they're saturated with, God, with encouraging gospel truths that we need to preach to our hearts every single day, brothers and sisters. What, what's Paul saying in verse 3? This, this one-verse prayer. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's saying, oh, Corinthians, you've known God's free infinite grace you've known his undeserved favor you know god and you relate to god as father and he relates to you as his adoptive children not not as your judge not as a consuming fire of holy justice remember the grace of the gospel god your father has saved you God's grace has been abundantly revealed to you in the cross of his son, your Lord, the long prophesied Christ. I'm bringing these things to your remembrance now. Dwell on these things, Corinthians. May they be a means of grace to your soul. May God's grace and peace continue to be upon you. Both are based on the fact, the unchangeable fact, that believers are in a covenantal relationship with God through the gospel. Consequently, the believer has peace with God. May that past reality bring you present comfort. I pray it would continue to be so. Revel in these truths. Preach them to your heart and live out your life like they are so. And if that's true of the church in Corinth, loved ones, it's no less true for us. Verse 3 is coming directly from God to the members of this local assembly. Grace and peace to you, New City Baptist Church, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to be encouraged in the gospel. He wants us to be encouraged in the grace and the peace that we already enjoy through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We have been sanctified. This leads directly into our second point. Now we have Paul's six-verse thanksgiving. And what's he thanking God for? For the grace of God the Corinthians have already received in Christ. So he's, he's repeating that theme again. And for the gifts of grace which will sustain them until their anticipated approval by God on the day of the Lord. Now, I mean, just at the risk of sort of beating a dead horse, bear in mind, the one fact that I think most people have at their fingertips when it comes to the Corinthian church is that it's a big, sinful mess, right? What do we see here? Paul looks at the Corinthian church as she is in Christ, 
before he looks at anything else that's true of the church. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as she is in Christ before he looks at anything else that's true of the church. Now, now there's something to consider. And not just at a local church level, but at an individual member level as well. You city, what do we promise each other in our membership covenant? We did this just two weeks ago at Cindy Doe's baptism. This is what we promise. I further engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the commandment of our Savior to secure it without delay. Why do we act that way? Because we look at each member of New City Baptist Church primarily as they are in Jesus Christ. Before we look at anything else that may be true of them, good, bad, or ugly. And there is bad and ugly. Uh, Consider this. If the first nine verses of this letter, of this epistle, were excised from our Bibles... It would be impossible for us to have anything but, I think, an absolute doomsday view of the church in first century Corinth. Right? I mean, apart apart from these opening verses, we'd think that this church was made up of rotten to the core, beyond the pale, pseudo-Christians, right? I mean, boasting in incest, visiting prostitutes, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, denying the resurrection of Jesus and taking each other to court. They're beyond the pale. But the first nine verses are not excised. Paul deliberately starts off this book of the Bible by thanking God for the grace of God the Corinthians have already received in Christ and then for the gifts which are going to sustain them to that last day. And that's because Paul's confidence in the church at Corinth is based on God's generosity and faithfulness. Look at verse 4 and following. Just just listen to these statements. They all speak of the lavish generosity of God toward these redeemed sinners. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him... You have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. So do you see, all throughout those verses, Paul's rehearsing the achievements of God, what God has done, not the Corinthians' achievements, right? Grace was given to them by God, verse 4. They have been made rich by God, verse 5. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among them by God, verse 6. They were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ by God, verse 9. And and this looks forward, obviously, to the the all-important point that Paul makes in chapter 4, verse 7. We'll come to that in a few weeks. When he asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it from God, why do you boast as though you did not? So he's setting them up for that, right? So just here's the big picture moving forward, guys. Just hang your, hang your, uh, your hat on this for the remaining verses. In verses 4 to 9, Paul gives thanks to God for the riches of his grace given to the Corinthians at their conversion. Those riches that they possess now in the present include a full allowance of spiritual gifts and a certain hope of a glorious future. So let's quickly work through the remainder of the passage before concluding with a couple of points of application. Verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Again, just, just a remarkable thing to say given the sin that's plaguing this church. But even so, Paul recognizes that God had begun a good work in them at their conversion. 
Can you say that to another member of this church, perhaps that you're, in, you're having difficulties with, that you're looking to avoid, that you don't get along with well? Can you actually pray for them and say, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus? I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus, specifically God's grace in making the Corinthians new creatures in Christ. It's going back to their conversion. Verse 5, for in him, in Christ Jesus, you have been enriched in every way. In what sense? What's he getting at here? How they've been enriched in every way. And here, Paul picks up on something that the Corinthians themselves value very, very highly with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God has enriched the Corinthian church with grace gifts for communicating and having insight. And Paul is thankful for this. It's a gift. Those are gifts that come from God for the edification, the building up of every local church. But the thing is, those are the two grace gifts the Corinthians value more than all the others. I mean, he's sticking his head into the lion's mouth here by saying this, right? Speech and knowledge are the two premium gifts that puff them up with pride. You're down here, but I'm up here because I have these gifts. Isn't that astonishing? He would actually go there. At the outset of this letter, Paul thanks God for the very gifts that are causing the church such problems. You know, but there's a, there's a method to his madness here. Yes, they, they mean they have these God-given gifts. God has given it to them. But for the present, he makes no comment on how they're being used in the church, which is terribly. But he comes to that. But the appearance of these gifts here, all kinds of speech, all knowledge, this obviously anticipates where Paul's going to take things later in his epistle. He's got it all worked out. He knows where he's going. Verse 5, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. That's saying, when Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians, God confirmed what Paul testified about Christ to the Corinthians. How? By enriching the Corinthians with spiritual gifts. It's evidence that what he's saying was true. The gospel's real. Here's the gifts. Now, those spiritual gifts served as God's confirmation of both the gospel itself and Paul's preaching of it. He's not, he's not backing away, obviously, from one of the major, major sin issues in this local church. Right here in his introduction, he brings it out to the fore, but he praises God for what he has done, not how they're using their gifts, not yet. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So as a result of God enriching the Corinthians with these gifts of grace, the result is going to be that they persevere in the faith as they wait for the return of Jesus Christ. He will also keep you firm to the end, verse 8, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself will continue to sustain them to the very end and order that, and with the sure result that, they will be blameless on that final day. So here we see that third, that third tense of that sanctification word, right? Glorification. I will be sanctified. That day when God sets his people apart from sin's presence and even possibility. Blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, not just the Corinthians. This is blessings just for this church, right? It's for every church, for all the church of God, all those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. In other words, Christian, your assurance of final salvation is not that God will save you even if you stop believing or if you stop repenting of sin. It's that God will keep you believing. God will sustain your faith. God will grant repentance throughout your Christian life. God will make your hope firm and stable to the end. God will cause you to persevere. I mean, Charles Spurgeon's fans were saying, I mean, if, if 
my salvation was dependent upon me, I would fall 1,000 times a day. That's the promise. And what's the basis of this promise? Verse 9 tells us God is faithful. Uh, just, just soak in that. God is faithful. Isn't that wonderful? But, but wait, wait a second, though. Why should God's faithfulness oblige him to keep me believing? Paul gives his answer in the next phrase, verse 9. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So do you see there's a connection, brothers and sisters, between the effectual call of God and the faithfulness of God. Christian, if God has called you to himself, then his own faithfulness obliges him to keep you in the faith. His own faithfulness obliges you to keep you persevering in the faith. But why is that? Why why is the very faithfulness of God at stake in the perseverance of those whom he has called? Because if the call of God were merely an invitation to come and hypothetically enjoy fellowship with his son and not an effectual call with the power to actually produce what it commands, then God's faithfulness doesn't oblige him to keep us there if we try to leave. No, the reason God's faithfulness is at stake in our perseverance, the reason why he's committed to keeping us in the faith is because his call is the outworking of his sovereign choice that we should be brought to glory. Do you remember the, the, that glorious text, Romans 8.30, the golden chain of salvation? Those he predestined from eternity past, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The golden chain of salvation, they're all linked together. Christian, do you sometimes lack assurance of your salvation? There, there are a number of things I could say about that, but one of the big ones is this pray for grace to understand yourself in relation to god right when you look back know yourself as being called by god when you look forward know yourself kept by god he is faithful what happened to make you a christian is the call of god what will happen to you to keep you a christian is the faithfulness of god Know who you are, each one of you, called by God, kept by God. And don't say to yourself this morning, there's no hope for me. I'm not among that number. No, you've got it all wrong. The sovereign freedom of God and the calling of sinners to himself is intended to give hope, not take away hope. This is very good news. It means that there is no one who is too bad. No one is too hard-hearted. No one is too far gone. God is free, God is sovereign, and God is rich to all who call upon him. All right, we need to start landing the plane. Two concluding points, 30 seconds each, and then I'll close with prayer. What's the takeaway from all of this? What's Paul's main point? It's the title of our sermon. Christian, become what you are. This is what God wants you to know, loved ones, as you walk out those doors today, number one, you are holy. You have been sanctified. Every Christian is a saint. I'm St. John. There sits St. Jill. There sits St. Alex. There sits St. Chris. Every Christian is a saint. Every, every Christian is holy. Every Christian is sanctified. That's why Paul can address the church at Corinth as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, even though they were failing to be holy in several areas. And again, don't misunderstand me. Of course, this comes up with faithful obedience, perseverance, repentance of sin, church discipline. All these things are with that, but... Yet he can call the Corinthians who were, he, he calls them called to be God's holy people. Right? That's, that's main point number two. You are responsible to be holy, Christian. It's that, that beautiful, unembarrassed tension, right? God is sovereign 
Human beings are responsible. Yet again, we see it here. You are responsible to be holy, Christian. Now, in the present, you are being sanctified. As, as Andy Nacelli memorably puts it, see and savor Jesus as the supreme sovereign savior and satisfier. A lot of S alliteration. See and savor Jesus as the supreme sovereign savior and satisfier. See sin, especially the sin that's the bad part that the culture values for what it actually is. It is idolatry. It is treason, holy treason, and it is folly. Sin cannot ultimately satisfy. Only Jesus can. So get in step with what God is doing in your sanctification, Christian, as you are being as you're being sanctified. Stop looking at porn. That way only leads to death. Chuck the tablet in the trash if you have to. Get in step with what God is doing at the level of your will, Christian. Start putting others first. Demonstrate that by your actions, not just a creed that you recite. Die to self-interest. Pick up your cross, right? Be last. Be the slave of all. Get in step with what God is doing at the level of your doing, Christian. Strive to make those best choices. Those choices where the gospel is at the center of all your aspirations and prioritizations that God might fulfill his good purposes. Dismantle those darling idols of your heart. And take responsibility to follow Jesus better by benefiting from the means of grace that God has provided for you. I'm talking about daily Bible intake, daily prayer, faithfully attending corporate worship, evangelism, serving the church, the faithful stewardship of your resources. And know this, be encouraged with this, a day is coming when saints will fully become what we already are positionally. Holy, right? I'm talking about holiness consummated, glorification, sanctification in that third tense. I will be fully sanctified. That day when God sets his people apart from sin's presence and even its possibility. It says, Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Hear that, New City Saints. The day is coming when we will fully become what we already are. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in your presence when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, give us grace that we may become what we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.